Well, so what we're doing, what we're doing this weekend, right, is just if you have forgotten where we are, we are considering this theme of the sufficiency of Jesus. That Jesus really is enough for our lives and for this world. And I think that this is very, very important for each and every one of us because we all struggle with our own insufficiencies. We, we all struggle knowing that we're not enough and feeling like we're not enough. And so in the midst of feeling as if we're not enough, we might look to Jesus and think, okay, Jesus could be helpful and he might help me get my stuff together. But for Christians, as we've been saying, Jesus is everything or he is nothing. Jesus is everything or he is nothing. And yet the constant struggle for all of us is this feeling that we have got to be everything or we are nothing. And so as we approach life, we constantly feel as if we're not good enough or smart enough or moral enough or passionate enough or driven enough or sold out enough. We don't read our Bibles enough. We don't pray enough. We don't go to church enough. We're not nice enough. We're completely insufficient for the lives that we think we ought to live. And so oftentimes, as we begin to examine our lives and then we begin to examine Christianity, we get frustrated because we've been a Christian for a while, maybe three years, four years, five years, 10, 15, 20 years, and we still feel this insufficiency. And we get frustrated. We're like, God isn't doing it. This thing isn't working. I'm not sufficient. And so we begin to punt on our Christianity, not because of Jesus, but because of us. And it's in those moments of deep insufficiency that God is inviting you to look at Him once again so that you would see and you would know and you would rest in the fact that He is sufficient for all things. And so what we've been talking about is this idea of the sufficiency of Jesus. And so the other night we talked about the sufficiency of His story. Right? This morning we talked about the sufficiency of our union Tonight, what I want us to talk about is the sufficiency of resting, right? And then in the morning, we'll talk about the sufficiency of new life. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so let's begin thinking tonight about the sufficiency of resting from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are, of a, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are very thankful that you are a God who delights to make himself known, and you have done that. You have not hidden from us, 
but you have revealed yourself to us, and you have done that in your word by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you've done that in the person and work of Jesus, and it really is our prayer that tonight as we look at your word that your spirit would show us lovely things of Christ and his love for us that we might rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, seeing as how uh, this is called a fall conference, that means, I guess, it's an assumption that summer is no longer here. And that's kind of sad, right? I mean, to think that summer is over is absolutely a bummer. Because I love the summer, right? And coming to camp, coming to summer camp, right, for fall conference is just like, it just brings back all the joys of summer, like going swimming, you know, playing in the creek, going on vacation, having cookouts with your family, with your neighbors, you know, those long days where the light just stays on forever. And the summer is amazing because there's this, just this laid-backness, right? There's this rest that is summer. And then it gives way to the hectic fall, which we call football season, right? And, uh, and if you think back to when you were a child, right, think about the summer and how great it was. I mean, in the summer, you could sleep in late. You know, you could watch... You know, your favorite TV shows, you watch Days of Our Lives, you know, like in the summer, because you can do that during the school year, and you're like, oh man, I wonder if Patch is going to get together with Karen, or whatever her name was, you know. I'm the only one who watched Days of Our Lives for that reference. But anyway, you know, and if you didn't play in the creek or the lake, you'd go to the pool with your friends, or maybe you would ride around the neighborhood on your bikes with everybody. And summer was the best because it was this time of rest, it was this a time of sort of enjoying all of the finished work of the year. I mean, think about it. When you were in fifth grade, you did all the work of fifth grade. And at the end of the year, you had this big celebration because the work was done. And then you got to have summer. And you would never have to do fifth grade again, most of you. Right? Because uh, you would never have to do fifth grade again because the work had been completed. And so you would be able to rest and begin living towards the glories of junior high school, right? Well, in our passage, uh, what we see is Paul is inviting us to rest. And he's inviting us to rest in that finished work of Jesus, to rest in light of what he has done so that we might begin living towards the glories that is life with him forever. And this is important for me, particularly as a pastor and as a psychopath, uh, because uh, when I interact with people in my congregation and when I interact with myself, one of the things I find is that most of us are tired and most of us feel beaten up. Most of us are filled with shame and self-loathing. And then there are others of us that are filled with self-righteousness and bitterness, primarily towards Christianity and others. And most of us feel in many ways these deep disappointments with our lives and with others. And we get really, really frustrated because we want our lives to change. Or we want other people's lives to change. And the change isn't happening or it's not happening fast enough. And as we begin to think about Christianity, the primary vision that we have for Christianity is this sense that Christianity is all about fixing it. Right? Deep down, what many of us believe is that God is disappointed in us and he will not love us until we fix it, until we change. 
And so when the struggles begin to come into our lives, or when they don't go away, we begin to beat ourselves up. We beat up everybody else around us. We get frantic trying to control, trying to fix everything. As Christians, right, one of the most frustrating things about being a Christian and hanging out with Christians is that we all want to fix everything. But what if Christianity isn't about fixing it? Like, what if Christianity is about resting? What if Christianity isn't about fixing yourself so that you can be okay with God? And what if Christianity is about resting in God's great love for you? And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, look, if you really want to change, you've got to rest. If you really want to change, it's not about fixing it. If you really want to change, you must rest in God's love. I want you to remember that the Colossians, they had started off really well. They loved Jesus. They planted a church in Colossae. They, they planted a church. They planted an RUF at the University of Colossae, right? Go Titans. I mean, they were amazing. It was one of the largest RUFs in the ancient world. And, uh, and, and Jesus was huge to them. He was big to them. And yet over time, right, they began to lose sight of Christ. So these people started coming to town and they were saying, look, you're not doing it right. You need to fix it. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. You haven't had enough experience. You're not doing Christianity right because if you were doing it right, your life, your life wouldn't look like this. And so Paul is writing to his friends and he's essentially saying, as they freak out, breathe. Rest. It's going to be okay. Because this thing that Christians call maturity or holiness or growth of the Christian life really is fundamentally about resting in Jesus. And you see this beginning in verse 16 where he says, therefore. Uh, the therefore points us back, right, to everything that he'd been saying before in verses 9, 9 through 15. And in those verses, what he's been saying, we looked at this morning, you are united to Jesus. And everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. And so what that means for us is that when Jesus died for your sins, he really died for your sins. And not just the sin you feel bad about when you look to Jesus, but he died for all of your sins, for all of your rebellion, for all of your indifference, all of it has been totally dealt with. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. It's a statement of victory. Everything has been done. All of your failures, all of your shame, all of your burdens, they have been dealt with by Jesus. And therefore, before God, if you have faith in Christ, you are no longer guilty before God. Any punishment that you might fear from God has already been put upon Jesus when he died on the cross. Anything that you would fear that he may do to you, he has already done to Christ and it will never go out on his people. In fact, verse 14, Paul goes on to say, the record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross. 
meaning anything that could be held against you, that whole record that you have kept and that record that the devil has kept, the record that your mom has kept, the record that your dad has kept, the record that your campus minister is keeping against you, like all of that stuff has been nailed to the cross. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your lust, your lies, your attractions, your dysphorias, your drunkenness, your pride, your shame, your anger, your disobedience, anything, if you are in Jesus, if you trust in Him, it has all already been dealt with and nailed to the cross in Christ. And therefore, because it has been dealt with, it will never be brought up again. And you are now free in Jesus to rest in what He has already done. Therefore, verse 16 Let no one pass judgment on you. Why not? Because God doesn't. Because God doesn't have anything against you. And so what Paul is saying, remember in Jesus, you are now a dearly loved child. You have been welcomed into the family and the kingdom of God. You belong to Him. Therefore, let no one tell you any different. You are loved. You are accepted by God. Therefore, rest. Rest in his work. And as we rest in Jesus, Paul then says, continue to rest in Jesus. See, uh, in, in Colossae, the people had come in and they were saying, look, I know you've heard about Jesus, and he's fine like for forgiveness and all that stuff, but if you really want to grow... And if you really want to change, if you really want to get better, if you really want to get into this thing, then you need to get serious. And we're not really all that different. Because we're like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I got it, got it, got it. Yeah, Jesus. Now what? Now we've got to get rigorous. Now we've got to get disciplined. We've got to get sold out. And what begins to happen to us is that we begin boasting in all of our obedience We begin boasting in our practices and our disciplines. And we boast in those things to assure ourselves and to assure the world that we belong to Him. And we're no longer resting in Jesus, but beginning to boast and work in order to assure ourselves and the world that we belong to Him and that we're loved by Him. And this almost always leads to judging one another. It almost always leads to us boasting and judging one another based on those things that we think make us holy and right with God. And so that's why Paul encourages the Colossians in verse 16 saying, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And you see their battle cry in verse 20, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And what was happening in Colossae is that they were beginning to look to all these rules. And they were beginning to look to their religious festivals. And they were looking to their liturgies. And they were looking to their experiences. And they were looking to all these things that they were doing or not doing. Rather than looking and resting to Jesus, in Jesus in order to mark them. In order to assure them. And in order to assure the world that they were okay with God. And so what happened was they stopped resting and they began working. 
Now, for the Colossians, their temptation was that of abstinence. Right? That's their battle cry. We don't handle, we don't taste, we don't even touch. And that's true for many of us, right? We love our abstinence. It shows that we're in control. Right? We love our abstinence. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't frat out. We don't skip Sunday services. We don't even skip RUF. You better not. You shouldn't. You know, get your act together. Don't know RUF. Uh, But for many of us, our boast isn't our abstinence. Our boast is our indulgence. You know, a few years ago, uh, people in my denomination, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, And we began to joke, people started joking about our denomination, saying that PCA stood for pipe, cigars, and alcohol, right? And and especially this was true of the young, reformed Presbyterians, people like RUF and other campus ministries. Because one of the chief uh, characteristics, we, we wouldn't say this, but subtly, one of the chief characteristics of being a real Christian is that you're free. Right, you're free to smoke. Right? You're free to drink. You're free to do what you want. And I have a variety of friends who don't drink for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that they found when they started coming into my RUF, when they started coming to my church, was that they felt more pressure to drink alcohol than they had ever felt from non-Christians. And for so many of us young, reformed types, drinking and indulging is the freedom for which Jesus died. But the freedom for which Jesus died is not for your indulgence. It is not for your abstinence. The freedom for which he died is to free you from your sin so that you might love God so that you might know him, and so that you might love your neighbor. You see, the problem with both the abstainer and the indulger is that neither of them are resting in Jesus. They both rest in their own doing. I'm mature because I can drink and I can handle it. I'm mature because I don't drink and nobody can handle it. What's on your list? For people my age, right, it's uh, how good are your kids, right? Like uh, your parents, <laughs> they, they measure their worth and their okayness based on you. Just no pressure. Uh, because if your kids are good, then you are good. And if your kids are bad, then you are bad. And we measure it not just by uh, how good they are, but by their successes, The jobs and the internships they get, the sports they play, the schools they get into. And then we begin to judge one another based on the decisions we make for our children, like whether or not they go to government schools or church schools or parent and their parents' friend schools, which is also known as homeschooling. Um, And then what you choose, then we judge. And as we think about this crazy election cycle that we're in, right, Facebook is filled with this. It's filled with judgment towards one another, especially towards Christians. Like, if you're a Christian, I demand that you tell me why you're going to vote the way you're going to vote. 
I mean, how dare you vote for George Washington? Could you believe that? I mean, you proved to me why a Christian could ever vote for George Washington. Think about it. You know, and then we begin to judge each other and, and value ourselves based on I'm a cool Christian or I'm a smart Christian. I'm a missional Christian. And those lists go on and on and on. And so the problem for the Colossians and the temptation for us is that rather than resting in Jesus, the one who has united us to himself, the one who is empowering us with the power of the resurrection, rather than looking and resting in him, we look to all these things that can divide us. And we love our lists. We love our lists of our own righteousness because the lists elevate us rather than elevating Jesus. And the way Paul says it is in verse 19, we are tempted to no longer hold fast to the head from whom our whole body, or whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows with the growth that is from God. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, your temptation is to let go of Jesus. Your temptation is to actually uh, use your religion to separate and to exclude. To look for reasons in your life to say, this is why I am excelling. This is why I am thriving. This is why my life is so much better than yours. We look for reasons to exclude others and say, you're not doing it right. You're not good enough for us. But what is so profound about the work of God is that our holiness was never meant to be about you. Your holiness is never meant to be about you because it was never your holiness in the first place. Notice again in verse 19, the growth that you experience, where does it come from? It comes from God. Any growth that you experience comes from God. And that growth that comes from Him is always towards Him and towards others. Notice what it says, hold fast to the head, meaning rest in Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its ligaments and joints grows. And so what Paul is saying is that all growth, all maturity, all of your Christianity is supposed to be towards Him. It is supposed to elevate Him. And all of our growth is towards Him. And as it comes towards Him, it moves us towards one another. Because what Jesus is doing is He is stretching out His hands to the world and He is pulling all of His people to Himself. And as He pulls His people to Himself, we are all pulled closer and closer towards one another. We will never, ever grow in Jesus if our goal is to be more holy than your neighbor. And what's amazing to me is that all of these things that we boast in, they're not only not our maturity, they won't even help you mature. Notice verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're of no value. They have an appearance of wisdom, but no value. Like all of our rules and all of our regulations, all these things that we boast in other than Jesus, they will never actually change us. 
I mean, just think about your own experience. I mean, the law tells you, don't covet. I covet. The law tells me not to lie. I lie. The law says don't lust, and I lust. The law doesn't change you. And it won't change you. And it won't change your friends. And it won't change your parents. And this is important because so many of us as Christians, as fix-it people, are yelling and shouting at our parents and we're yelling and shouting at our friends, be good. Get it right. Fix it. Stop it. I've told you once, I've told you a million times, quit it. And people don't change. And we wonder why. Well, they don't change because the law and man-made religion have no power to change us. They are merely, as it says, shadows of reality pointing to something better. Notice verse 17. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And it seems to me that for so many of us, one of our deepest problems is that we are holding on so tight to the shadows. It's like, uh, if you have children, I don't know if any of you have children, but if you have children and you go for a walk with your kids uh, in the middle of the day and you can see your shadow, your kid starts jumping on your shadow. They're like, does that hurt? It's a shadow. It doesn't hurt. Like, if you've ever tried to make out with your wife's shadow, it's humiliating. Uh, don't do it. Sammy Rhodes told me about it. It was awkward. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you don't, like, it's, that, he didn't tell me about it. He hadn't done it. But it is awkward to think about, like, making out with your wife's shadow. <laughs> Right? It's not fun, it's not pleasurable, it's not enjoyable because it's a shadow. And you weren't made to embrace a shadow. You were made to embrace the substance. And yet, over and over again, what we're inviting people into is to embrace the shadows. We're inviting them to be good. We're inviting them to do more. We're inviting them to get their lives together rather than inviting them to rest in the love of God found in Jesus. And I think maybe worse than that, what we are doing is we are judging and shaming one another based on the shadows, rather than on Christ. I assume many of you have seen uh, the movie Peter Pan. Right, if you remember at the beginning, Peter you know, he comes into the window, and what's he looking for? He's looking for a shadow. Because why? The shadow, he lost it. The shadow had been separated from his body. And so as he's looking for his shadow, he comes to his shadow, and Wendy finds the shadow, and what does she do? The first thing she does is she sews it to the feet of Peter Pan. And as Christians, we must sew the shadows. We must sow our religion and our life to the feet of Jesus because he is the substance and we must rest in him. Here's the deal. Paul is telling us that all of this stuff that we tend to rest in and boast in is actually of no ultimate value. Listen to the descriptions, verse 18. He describes them as being puffed up, meaning they lead to arrogance. Verse 18, he describes them as flowing from a sensuous mind, not a spiritual mind. 
Verse 19, they're separated from the head, meaning they have nothing to do with Jesus. Verse 22, they're destined to perish, meaning they don't lead to eternal life. Verse 23, they have an appearance of wisdom, but not actual wisdom. Verse 23, they're self-made religion, not God-given religion. Verse 23, they are a severity to the body. They are not healthy. Verse 23, again, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, even though they appear to be wise. They are of no ultimate value. And so where is it then that we need to look to for our maturity? Well, it's the same place that we began. We need to rest in Jesus and all that he has done and all that he is. Notice verse 19. Jesus is the one through whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Here's the deal. In order for our Christianity to be alive, it must be united to Christ. And no matter how many good things you do, and no matter how much you know, and no matter how successful your life is or isn't, you will never be alive to God until you begin to rest in Him. And this is what theologians call a vital union. And what they mean by vital union is that when we are united to Jesus, we're actually united to him in a life-giving way. That he gives you his life. Not just what he has done to forgive you, but he gives you his life that you would be made more and more like him. And the only way you access that life is by faith and resting in Him to work. Maybe the best way for us to think about it tonight is, uh, is like this. A couple weeks ago, I was walking through my neighborhood. And uh, I live in the city. And uh, I was walking. I, I do a walk every morning. Sometimes I run. Sometimes I walk. But I was on my walk. And I was going by uh, JC's house. JC is an old man. He's a leathery old man. And everyone in the neighborhood is afraid of JC. I mean, JC smokes eight boxes of uh, cigarettes a day on his front porch. And uh, he just sits there and listens to a transistor radio on his front porch. Uh, he sits in a lawn chair, one of the webbed lawn chairs, you know, behind his chain link fence. And so, you know, and, and anybody who walks by, he does one of these. Like, just pointing at you, letting you know, I see you, don't come near me, right? And so as I'm walking through the neighborhood, I like, we kind of make eye contact, and I'm like, I've been trying to work up the courage to interact with JC without just being pointed at. And so I see his hydrangea bushes in the front of his house. And his hydrangea bushes are gorgeous. I mean, they're the most uh, vivid blues I've ever seen. And so as I'm walking by his house, I see these hydrangeas. So I go, should I talk to him? I'm going to do it. And so I said, hey, your hydrangea bushes are really beautiful. And like he like looks at me and he like kind of gets up out of his chair and he starts walking over towards me and he points at me. But not one of these points, but a point like this, like come here. And so I start walking over to J.C., and there is a tear in J.C.'s eye. And he says, those are my wife's hydrangeas. 
And she died a year ago. They're the most important thing to me. Thank you for recognizing them. So when you're finished with your little girl walk, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> I want you to come back to my house and there's going to be a vase and there are going to be some clippers. And I want you to bring some of these flowers back to your wife and you're going to be a hero. And I said, yes, sir, I'll be back in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so I let go, I got finished my girl walk. And it was a power walk, mind you. And, uh, and I get back... I get back, I clean up, I go back to JC's house, and there's the vase. And there are the clippers. And so I, like, he, uh, he's sitting out there, and he, like, waves me into the chain link fence. And so, like, I get to go into the holy of holies, or, <laughs> or the deformity of deformity, whatever it would be. And I go in there, right, and I, like, start clipping, like, these things, and I, like, fill it up. He's like, I'm not enough, more. I'm like, all right, I'll bring so anyway, I clip all these hydrangeas, and I bring them home, right? And I set them on the, on the dining room table for my wife when she comes home. I'm a hero, right? Not to shadow the substance that day. And, uh, and uh, anyway. And, uh, and anyway, and so, so I give her the flowers and everything. And you know what happened to the flowers? They died. Like, they're like dead in like three days, two, two or three days, because they had been cut off from the source of life. It was great. The flowers were amazing. They're beautiful. Appearance of wisdom, but no life. When they've been cut off from the source. And the same is true for our Christianity. Our lives have got to remain resting in the source. You can plant those cut-off flowers in the dirt. You can put them in a vase and they will die. Unless they are connected to the root. And the same is true with your Christianity and my Christianity. If we begin to boast in our work, if we begin to look to all these other things other than Jesus, your Christianity will shrivel up and it will die but you will find life as you rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, we love You. You are too good to us. Forgive us that we look away. Forgive us that we boast uh, in ourselves and our strength. But we are thankful that You are sufficient for all of that. And You continually invite us back to Yourself that we might find life in You. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.